Jones. It's time for the second hour of Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Wright Elnick, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. We're talking about your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. My name, as I said, is Michael Rydelnik. I'm professor of Jewish Studies and Bible and also the academic dean at Moody Bible Institute. Coming to you live from Chicago. If you have a question, give me a call. The phone number here is 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. You can also post your question if you can't get through, although now's a good time. We're just starting out the hour. It's a good time to call, 877-548-3675. But you can also post your question by going to openlineradio.org. There's a link there that you can click on it. It says, Ask Michael a Question. Fill out that form. Your question will be put into the mailbag, and Trish will make sure she can answer it. She'll either, will either answer it sooner or later <laughs> because Trish decides uh, how many we can get through. So uh, we'll do that. But we try and get to them. And if, if they pile up, then we do an all-mailbag program. That's always fun to do as well. But before we get back to the phones, let me tell you about our current resource. Uh, would you like to take Open Line home with you so you can get answers whenever you want them? You can now. It's my book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions. One of our listeners wrote, It's just as though I'm back at the radio kitchen table with Michael, Trisha, and Eva taking the most frequently asked questions and even some of the most significant ones, I tried my best to give easy-to-understand answers that anyone could grasp, whether a seeker or a mature follower of Jesus. Fifty most important Bible questions is yours when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122. That's 888-644-7122. Or go to openlineradio.org. And remember, when you give ask for 50 most important Bible questions. And we're going to talk with Bill in Winter Park, Florida, listening to WKES. Welcome to Open Line, Bill. How can I help you? Hey, Dr. Redelnik. Really, uh, thank you for taking my call. I I love your program. It's been so helpful. Thank you. It's been so helpful. So I've I've got a question regarding Bible study and interpretation. Um, Traditionally, when you go to a Bible study, you know, then the leader says, well, what does that say to you? Mm-hmm. But recently I've, I've heard other teachers that say, you know, read the passage and then understand what the passage was saying to the people at the time that the passage was written and the context there. Mm-hmm. And then what can you infer from what it said to them? Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on, on those two ways of, of doing things for yeah. Bible study. Yeah, I always teach, when I teach Bible interpretation, I always say the worst question we can ask at Bible study is, what does this mean to you? Because I really don't care what it <laughs> means to you, and you shouldn't care what it means to me. What we want to ask is, what did the author mean when he wrote this? Uh, and now I'm, I always look at it from the perspective, okay, this is the human author— but also from the perspective of Second Peter 1, that there's no word that was written, no prophecy given that was of the human author. The, the Holy Spirit of God moved men to write 
what he wanted them to write. Now, he used their own personalities, their own styles, even their own intentions, but they knew they were writing God's Word. So what we have to do is ask, what did the human author intend to convey by writing this? And there, there are a whole lot of ways that we, you know, you learn how to do it, study the words, study the grammar, uh, study the context. All those things are important. But what you're looking for is what did the author intend by writing this? And you get that right from the text. You don't get into his mind. You can't do that. But you can look at the words and say, ah, this is what he meant. And uh, so the meaning lies in the text not in my head, not in my heart. Now, I think it shouldn't stay there. After we've discerned what the author says, and I think this is what we need to do in Bible study, is what's the principle that we can apply today? How can I apply this to my life now? So we go, we try and find a principle in the text and then say, okay, this is the principle that's you know, the, the text meant this at that time, but now there's a principle that, that's for all time. And then we say, how do I apply this? How does it affect my life today? Uh, my professor of Bible study methods back in seminary, Howard Hendricks, used to say in his distinctive voice, you haven't studied until you've applied. So, uh, yes, we have to ask, what did it mean to the original author? Uh how did the audience understand it, the original audience? What's the principle that transcends time, and how do I apply it? That's how we study the Bible. I think you're right, Bill, that we need to stop saying, what does this mean to you, and go to, what did the author mean? Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate that. Do you mm -hmm. think that Hebrew-Greek references are good and you know, and a good commentary? When you really dig into it, yeah, I, I actually, you know, that's why I studied Hebrew and Greek because I think it really helps. But I thought it would solve all my problems, and then what I saw is that there are all sorts of various various ways that a passage could be translated. Uh, and then I thought, oh wow, it just gives me more options for understanding a passage, which is good. But it it didn't just make it black and white. This is it, uh, which is what I expected. Uh, that's not that's not what it was like. So, uh, and I do think everyone should have at least a, if you want to study the Bible, you know, I've got, if you came to my house, you, you would see that I have a lot of commentaries on every book of the Bible. Uh, and I don't think everyone should do that. Uh, you know, this is my vocation. I teach the Bible vocationally, right? So that's why I have so many commentaries. Uh, but, you know, I, I have students come to my house and they say, when you die, will you leave me your books? I think it's... <laughs> they're already hoping I'm going to die. Maybe it's because they have a paper due. I don't know. But uh, the, here's the point, though. Everyone should have a good one-volume commentary. And there are a lot of good one-volume commentaries. I happen to be biased. I like the Moody Bible commentary. But I think everyone should have one. I think it's a great tool. I think everyone should have a Bible dictionary. We have a really good one from Moody Publishers called the Unger's Bible Dictionary. Uh, so, but there are lots of good ones. Find a good one, use it. It'll really help you. Hey, thanks for your call, Bill. Really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to speak next with Jeff in Massillon, Ohio, listening to WVML. Welcome to Open Line, Jeff. How can I help you? 
Hello, Dr. Hardelnik. Um, you can help me by explaining to me, with your expertise and knowledge, uh, the meaning of Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. Mm-hmm. And I realize there's a excerpt there of, or I should say a quote out of Psalm 68, 18. Mm-hmm. But I just wondered what this meant. I mean, I didn't understand the script before it and after it, but when I hit those four verses, I get a blank. Yeah. Uh, he's saying that uh, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. He's actually talking about his authority to give gifts, spiritual gifts, to each person, because you can see that beginning with verse 11. And he personally gave some, he talks about the gifted offices of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, for the training of the saints. So uh, it's talking about the authority of those who were uh, able to, uh, of the one who was able to give gifts. Uh, and it, it, then it gives this passage uh, that when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to people. He is using that, I believe, as the principle from Psalm 68 that the victorious king, when he ascends up to victory, he takes prisoners captive. Now he has the authority also to give gifts, usually spoils, to his soldiers, to people, whomever he wants. Uh, and uh, what this seems to say, what Paul is doing, is he's doing a little Hebrew midrash on that, Jewish midrash. He's saying, what does it mean that he ascended, except that he had to ascend, descend to the lower parts of the earth, meaning he had to become incarnate for Jesus to ultimately ascend as victor. He had to first descend as the incarnate Son of God. And the one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens. He's also ascended as victorious king. And then he sent the Holy Spirit and gave gifts to those because he has the authority to do it because he is the victorious king. And that's so all the gifts that we have, the spiritual gifts that we have, and every one of us has at least one spiritual gift if we've put our trust in the Messiah. Every one of us is at least one gift. And sometimes we get, like in Corinth, they got a little proud of that. But uh, the, uh, the truth of it was, it's a gift from him. We should, we should uh, be praising him for the gifts and serving him with our gifts and not taking credit for them. He's the one with the authority to give them. I hope that helps a little bit understanding Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. We're going to be right back with more of your questions in just a moment. Call 877-548-3675 and we'll talk about your questions about the Bible, God, and the spiritual life. This is Open Line with Michael Reidelnik. Welcome back to Open Line. So glad you're listening today and Uh, Last week, we had a great time. We had a live studio audience right here at Moody Bible Institute, and they were the ones that asked the questions. One of my favorite things about that meeting with those uh, people was that a bunch of them came up and said, I'm a kitchen table partner. I love meeting kitchen table partners. They're people who listen regularly, but beyond listening regularly, they give every month. They make a commitment to do that so that 
we can stay on the air every week answering people's Bible questions, and it's so fun to meet them in person. I love meeting, actually, listeners in person, whether whether they give regularly or not, but especially kind when I meet people who have made that commitment. It, it, it's such an encouragement. Uh, we're really grateful for it. And uh, maybe you listen and you've never even thought about giving a gift or uh, have thought about never thought, maybe you've even given a gift, but you've never thought about becoming a kitchen table partner. This is the time to think about doing that. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. It's really helpful to us. And just as a bonus, what we'd like to do is send you a Bible study moment every other week. You get it in your email, you click on it, and you get to listen to a brief Bible study. I think you'd find it really encouraging as you do. So if you want to become a kitchen table partner, uh, the thing I would suggest you do is give a call, 888-644-7122, or you can go to our website, openlineradio.org, and click on that and learn how you can become a kitchen table partner. We really do appreciate it. Now, we're going to talk with Pinky in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, listening online. Hello, Pinky. How can we help you today? Hi. Thank you for all you do, Michael. Um, I should know this because I wait, wait, Pinky. Do you go to Do you go to Beth Yeshua there in 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 Philadelphia, or do I know you from there? No, you haven't met me personally, oh, okay. and I um, I went to um, the congregation in Cincinnati, in Cincinnati before the Chernoffs moved to Philly. Okay. I knew so I knew your that, name from somewhere. I, I go way back. <laughs> okay. Well, I called you two weeks ago. Uh-huh. Thank you. Um, and so here's my quandary, and I yeah. should know this, because I am a Jewish believer, and I just celebrated my 50th spiritual birthday. Wow. Um, I am wrestling with definitions between Messiah Lord, Savior, and whether there's a difference using the word Messiah between rabbinic Judaism and biblical Judaism. Okay. Well, first of all, the word Savior really just means deliverer, and it can refer to either physical deliverer, someone who would deliver us from a difficult situation uh, maybe a military situation. When the Messiah comes and delivers Israel, he can deliver them from a troubling situation. Uh, or it can mean a spiritual deliverer, delivering us from our sins. But that's what Savior means. Uh, the word Lord means master, ruler of our lives. Uh, the word Messiah means the anointed one. It could be used of anyone who's anointed for a special service. It was used of the priests who were anointed. Uh, it was used of the king who was anointed. It was even used of Cyrus the Great, who God appointed to a special service uh, to deliver Israel from the captivity. So it means, uh, that's what anointed means. But then there was this specialized term that's used, oh, probably about 12 or 14 times, I think, in the Old Testament. Some people think a little bit less, but it's used of a special son of David, a Davidic king who had come and appointed for the service of delivering Israel and the world from their sins and establishing God's righteous reign on the earth. That's the word Messiah. That's how it's translated. Uh, and you want to know if there's a difference between rabbinic and biblical Judaism's definition, right? Uh, of Messiah, yes. Yeah. 
Well, let me just say that when we use the word Judaism, Judaism is only used once in the New Testament, and it means Jewish religion. And when you talk about rabbinic Judaism, it's the religion of the Jewish people as rabbinics or as the rabbis decided it would be. Then there's like Messianic Judaism. It's the religion of the Jewish people that believes in the Messiah uh, for Jewish believers. Uh, So there's different terms like that. Uh, I do believe that the rabbis use the term, if you study in the Talmud, for example, in Sanhedrin 97 and 98, uh, 99, it's a very strong Messianic section of the Talmud. They'll talk about things like the Messiah being uh, uh, a pre-existent being, but not an eternal being. They talk about him being one of seven beings or things created before God created the world. So that has a different perspective of, uh, of course, when we read in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, we see that he's an eternal being uh, and uh, that he is the forever son, the eternal son of, of, of God, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existing in three person. So we see that in Scripture. Uh, so there's a little bit of a different perspective. The emphasis on in rabbinic Judaism is the Messiah coming as a political and national deliverer, which is true. That's what the Lord Jesus will do upon his return. However, uh, they, they de-emphasize the spiritual deliverance from our sin. So uh, there are some differences in the description of the Messiah in rabbinic Judaism than what I would say, understanding uh, what, what we Jewish people who believe in Yeshua and Jesus think of him in, in, from Scripture. Okay? Yes, and I would presume that both Gentile and Jewish believers, or Messianic uh, Jewish believers, and, and those from Gentile background have the same view. Is that correct? Yeah, if we if we believe in Yeshua, uh, biblically, he's the uh, eternal, the eternal one, the one who comes, as Micah 5, 2 says, it says he's born in Bethlehem, but he really comes from the days of old, even from eternity. So, uh, yeah, we see him the same way. Uh, That's whether, great. Yeah, yeah. Great. Hey, thanks for your call, Pinky. Really appreciate it. Uh, and call back anytime. Uh, we're going to talk with Bob in South Florida. How can I help you today, Bob? Yeah, my, my question was, I was in Second Chronicles 32, verse 3 today. Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria, is getting ready to attack uh, Judah. He's already insulted the people of Judah, saying, why are you believing in uh, the gods and all that? And Hezekiah uh, gives his order to his chief officers to cut off the springs of water uh, against the king of Assyria. Now, my question is, how did he do that, and how can he do that without affecting himself? And uh, the, the uh, inhabitants of Judah, because if you cut off the water, I, I looked in the Ryrie Study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible, and another study Bible. I could not find an answer on how that's done. Okay. Do you have a comment on that? Well, uh, 
I don't think that I think what he was doing was uh, he was concerned for Jerusalem. Uh, people had gathered there, and what he was doing was he maintained uh, the spring that brought water to Jerusalem, and he gathered that water for the people of Jerusalem. But what he did is in the areas where these uh, Assyrian armies were camping, they temporarily blocked up the water, the springs and the rivers, so that they couldn't they couldn't get the water, and it was a, a sort of a a ploy to keep Sennacherib's army from being refreshed. That's what I would say. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks thank for your call. Uh, we're going to speak next with Marsha in Westchester, Illinois, listening on WMBI. Welcome to Open Line, Marsha. How can I help you? Thank you. Yes, I have a question concerning 1 Corinthians chapter 15, no, chapter 14, verse 15, where Paul says, What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praises with the Spirit, and I also will sing praises with my understanding. I'm getting a little bit, I understand about tongues, but when it speaks of the Spirit, uh, I've been told that that's a prayer language. So Mm -hmm. could you, like, clarify for me, please? Sure. Uh, Okay. Well, let's see. Here's what I would say. First of all, uh, if you put it in context... He's talking about praying in, therefore, the person who speaks in another language should pray that he can interpret. The word language there is another tongue, and that's all that the word tongue means. Uh, It means a language, tongues, languages, Uh, like we use it today, men of every tongue. We would say men of every language. That's what it means. It seems to me that the spiritual gift there, some people think it's a special, mystical, heavenly language that uh, is used just for prayer. I don't think that's what Paul means. He's talking about the spiritual gift of being able to speak in a language that one has never learned. It's uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And, you know, some people believe that 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 spiritual gift has ceased. Others believe it continues. I'm among those who believe it ceased, but I don't want to get into that now. I'm just, when he was writing it, obviously was operative. And he says, a person who speaks another language should pray that he can interpret. In other words, he says, don't just speak in these foreign languages that, that you can. You also need to be able to interpret it. Because how can someone say, amen? Uh, it says in verse 16, how can someone agree with you in prayer if they don't know what in the world you're saying? So he said, if I pray in another language, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So he says, you know, you should pray that you get the gift of interpretation or that someone has the gift of interpretation. And when you pray in this language that you have never learned and you don't know what it means, make sure it is translated with someone who has the gift of interpretation. Uh, And then verse 15, he says, what then? This means, what's the outcome? How am I going to practice this? He tells us what to do. He says, uh, I will pray with the Spirit. That means using my spiritual gift, using this language that I've never learned. But also, I'll pray with my understanding. That means I will use the gift of interpretation or have someone with the gift of interpretation translate the prayer whenever I pray in that 
with that gift of being able to speak a foreign language. I will sing with the Spirit. That means I will sing by the power of the Spirit when I use that spiritual gift of, speak, of singing in another language that I've never learned, but I will also sing with understanding. That means there'll be interpretation at the same time. So it's not saying either or, it's saying both and. Uh, some people take that as you can either pray in your language that you know, or you can pray in this mystical language. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you pray in, in uh, the foreign language that you've never learned before, make sure that there's also understanding. If you sing with this language you've never learned before, make sure there's understanding, that there's someone that interprets it so that people can understand, those around us can understand what in the world we're doing. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you so very much. Yeah. Definitely. Thanks. Yeah. And by the way, that's a a caution that I would uh, have for people. You know, too often... Uh, people are, are, are in other languages or what they think are other languages, whatever it is, and, and there's no interpretation. They're always, if there's, uh, and I happen to think that this gift has ceased, but if it's being practiced, there should always be interpretation. Okay, we're going to talk with Germaine in Atlanta, Georgia, listening on WCRF, uh, streaming it right there. Hey, Germaine, how can I help you today? Hey, how are you? I just had one question, and I, I love your show. I'm down here. You know, obviously, you know, Dr. Stanley passed away this mm-hmm. week, uh, this past week. So uh, I've, I've been, like, uh, consoling that. And my grandmother loves your show, too. So um, I just was wondering, um, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And I wanted to know how the generations were made with only these two people. And I'm very infinite and, and a baby in my stages in, in my spiritual walk. But I just wanted to know how the generations were made just from the two people that were created in the beginning, yeah. Adam and Eve. Like, how do we have, like, yeah. other generations when they were a part yeah. of just one family? Yep. Okay, so Cain, well, they obviously had Cain and Abel, uh, two sons. And then uh, Cain killed Abel, and uh, God raised up Seth to replace Abel, but you must presume there were other children. They lived a long time, and although incest is wrong, that was the only way they could reproduce, and so the children married their siblings, and that's where the generations came from. Hope that helps. We'll be right back with more questions on Open Line. Open line, and joining me right now is Trisha McMillan. Uh, she's got the questions you've sent in. People always want to know: Can I study at Moody Bible Institute? I'd love to take a course with you. They say uh, I think it'd be great uh, if you did get to study at Moody Bible Institute, and in fact, you can. We are developing an extensive online catalog of courses. You can even get a degree online in the Bible, just doing online courses. You can also study. Uh, at Moody Bible Institute as a traditional student from wherever you live, because we have classes where through the internet you can join class, and there are people who actually get their degree from Moody Bible Institute 
even a seminary degree, graduate degree, or undergraduate without ever setting foot on our campus. That's just amazing to me. Whatever it is, or of course you can send uh, and bring your students here, and uh, we have a, a terrific on uh, residency. We have dormitories, and students are studying in the classroom, of course. But all those are ways you can study at Moody Bible Institute. Check out moody.edu to find out how you can study at Moody Bible Institute or Moody Theological Seminary. Here comes Trisha. Trisha, you studied everywhere. Moody Bible Institute, <laughs> Moody Theological Seminary. I did. Right? Yeah. yeah, it was great. I loved my time at Moody. I am still here yeah. at Moody. Yeah, you never left because you liked it so much, right? Right, yeah. right. Yep. Yeah. So, well, we got a bunch of questions here. Let's take care of them. Okay. Our first question is from Joe. Joe, um, her question is, why Job? <laughs> that, that's her broad question. Yeah. Um, the bigger underlying thing is that her son... Uh, has decided the Old Testament was written by a bunch of vile, angry men that made up stories of violence and anger to represent their human evil powers, um, such as the unnecessary torture of Job. Mm -hmm. So basically, how do you reconcile these two? I know last week we actually answered a question about why the God of the Old Testament seems different from the God of the New Testament. Um, but they're not. But, but they're God not. Of, God of right. love and justice, either testament, right? Right, but why would a good God um, suggest one of his most faithful servants to be tortured um, just to prove something to mm -hmm. Satan? Um, he struggles to understand how a God that loves his children as God loved Job could be so cruel only to prove what God already knew. Yeah. Now, I just want to be really clear about yes. something. This wasn't—if it was to prove it to Satan, it wouldn't have been written in the Bible. Okay. The message— is for us who read the Bible uh, rather than for Satan. He's a character in the story, but the message is for us. And the message is the one that it sounds to me that, the, that Joe's son hasn't gotten. Here's what it is. And this is a hard message. That God is sovereign. And that when we suffer in this life, it is not because God is picking on us or trying to hurt us. It is because he has a far greater objective to purify us. And he is sovereign in the way he can do it, and we must submit to that sovereignty. That's one of the hardest lessons that we have. But I got to tell you, every one of us, every one of us in this life will suffer sooner or later, more or less, but we will all suffer. And our great comfort is knowing that a sovereign God is in charge of that, that he is the one that's taking care of that. And not only that, but just as he was with Job, he's with us. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. That means suffering, troubles. But fear not, I've overcome the world. He also promises that he'll be with us. Listen, everyone in this world is going to suffer, whether they are followers of Jesus or not. We all suffer. The difference for those of us who know Jesus is who encourages us and takes us through those times, who never leaves us or forsakes us, who empowers us by his spirit to be encouraged. 
Uh, this is the greatest lesson that we can learn, that a sovereign God is in charge of everything, and we can't even, we can't talk back to him. It gives us, now you think, well, this sounds mean. No, that's, that's what gives me hope. This is not some random, terrible world where terrible things are happening, because terrible things do happen. But I know a good God is sovereignly in charge, and I can trust him with even the difficult things that I encounter in my life. That's what I think the answer is. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. I hope that helps, Joe, in your conversations with your son. Mm-hmm. Um, our next question is from Ola in Illinois. Listen to WMBI. Can an unbeliever demonstrate a fruit of the Spirit? such as kindness, self-control, love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. I wouldn't call it a fruit of the Spirit because that means a product of the Spirit of God in, in our life. Uh, and I don't believe that the Spirit indwells people who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. But uh, spiritual gifts and uh, uh, spiritual fruit is obviously God transforming us by his spirit so that these things come out. However, those things might be in us without the power of the spirit. It just might be part of our personality, our nature. Uh, People say, really, can anyone do anything good? Of course people can do good things. Uh, This is what Jesus said. He says, if you, being evil, now he's recognizing human sinfulness. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? So that's Matthew seven eleven. Uh, obviously, people who don't know the Lord can show kindness, can give good gifts, can do all sorts of good things, be sacrificial, be noble, but that is not a product of the Spirit. That is a product of being made in the image of God and uh, a reflection of him. Okay. Yeah. The, yes. But it's not enough good to get us in, in good with God. Just we all sin, and that's what separates us from God. So even though people can do good things, we, still, we all sin, and that separates us. And Jesus recognized that. He says, if you being evil can give good gifts to your children. Why is that important? Because what he did is he came uh, to transform us so that we can be uh, indwelt by the Spirit. If we will trust that Jesus died to take the punishment that we deserved and that he was raised again, and now he will empower, if we trust in him, he will indwell us by his Spirit and he will transform us by his Spirit and we'll have fruit by the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and it will come out. But the key part to remember is we're never going to be good enough to get to God. What we need is to have faith in Jesus. Trust in him that he died for our sins and rose again. Okay. By the way, if you're listening, you think, I I, I know I do some good things, but I've never put my trust in Jesus. Now's the time to do it. Don't wait. Put your trust in him. Establish by doing that a forever forgiven relationship with God. Starts now and lasts forever. And if people have more questions or they want to see more information on our website, openlineradio.org, up in the top right corner, there's a little um, button, I guess, that says how to know Christ. Mm-hmm. And if they click on that, it takes them to a page um, where it talks about what that means. It's got a message from our Moody Bible Institute president, Dr. Mark Job, a little mm-hmm. video 
I say little video. It's eight the and a half minutes long where he explains this a little bit more. Um, it kind of gives you some Bible verses you can look up that kind of go with what Michael just talked about, way to contact us and this kind of thing. That's very so, helpful. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. 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 It's a great resource if you are talking with someone or if you have those questions yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, Nada is in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, listens on the website. And she says, Moses and the Israelites were given the law in Exodus 20, 13 that says, do not murder. Did the Jewish people, when when they would um, were going to the land and they took Jericho, um, was this not obeying that command? Um, and also like David, when he went into battle, when... How is that different than murdering? Is mm-hmm. that violating that commandment? Well, I think it's kind of interesting that someone would ask that because the same God who said do not murder in Exodus twenty thirteen uh, required Israel to conquer Jericho and act the way they did. Uh, God orders Israel to go to battle. And so it seems to me that then the question becomes if this if a person would take this as murder then the question is well which god you know which which command do i obey right and so the the and of course there's other instances where god commands taking a life like uh, a, a murderer should have capital punishment experience capital punishment uh well, the, the people say, well, then that's another murder to compound the first murder. It's not. Here's the difference. In Exodus 20:13, it's do not murder. That's what it means. In other places, God may authorize a just killing. It, does, it sounds harsh, but it does appear the state has been given the authority to take a life of a murderer you know, uh, you know, we have all these categories: first degree, intentional, all these different things uh, uh, that could lead to a person uh, having capital, experiencing capital punishment. But that's not murder. What that is, justice. And the distinction there is uh, unjust killing. Uh, that is murder. Uh, but there are circumstances, whether in war or in uh, capital punishment or things like that, where it is the justified taking of a life that is appropriate and, uh, sadly, a consequence of of living in a sinful world. And maybe I should ask, some translations actually say, do not kill, Mm -hmm. which the... And I think in her original question, she had do not kill. Yeah. And I looked it up, and I the version I was looking at said do not murder, and so I changed it. Yeah. So... So that's partially on me here, but the what hmm, what is meant by do not kill is that a bad translation? Should it be do no, not it's murder? No, sa- it's the same Hebrew word. It's the same word. But in, in context, uh, in the Ten Commandments, it says do not murder. But the way we understand that is uh, it would be, the implied would be do not uh, take a life in an unjustified way. Okay. And then... In other contexts, when God orders, like capital punishment, uh, of taking a life that is a justifiable killing, 
So do ta- do take this life because it is okay. justified. So that's so th- that's why modern translators distinguish between murder and killing. Okay. Okay, so when we see do not kill, it it should mean to us do not murder in the context of the 10 commandments. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I should have started with that question. Yeah, that's good. But thank you. Thank yeah. you for answering those questions yeah. for us. Yeah. Thank you so much for pulling those together, Trisha. We'll do more next week. Uh, we're going to be right back with more of your calls in just a moment. This is Open Line with Michael Rydelnik and Trisha McMillan. Stay right there. We're coming right back. You know, people often ask when when I'm live with them, when they meet me, and even on the air, how should we think about the Jewish people? What does it mean that God chose the Jewish people? What is God's plan for the Jewish people? Well, Chosen People Ministries, an organization that brings the good news to the Jewish people around the world, and one of our underwriters wants to help us answer those questions, and so they're offering a free book called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. It explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what he will do for them, what he has done for them, what he will do for them in the future. Uh, If you'd like a copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to our website. It's our website, not chosen people. Our website, openlineradio.org. Scroll down to the bottom. You'll see a link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. When you click on that, you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your very own copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. We're going right back to the phones now to Tom in Chattanooga, Tennessee, listening on WMBW. Welcome to Open Line, Tom. How can I help you? Hey, thanks for taking our questions today. It's the highlight of our sat- or my Saturday, I'm sure. Thank you. Everybody else, too. And uh, My question is, uh, for me, I thought of this while I was listening to you, you and your guests in the first hour, mm-hmm. is... Uh, do you have a system of note-taking or underlining uh, that you use in your Bible reading and Bible study? Uh, well, for many, many years, I wouldn't write my Bible because it was a part of my upbringing uh, of respecting holy books. And so in Judaism, we were, we were not encouraged in any way, shape, or form to write in a Bible. Uh, but in more recent years, I have started highlighting and notating and marking things as I read. Uh, and I'm not sure how I got over that, but for many, many years, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I got a new Bible a few years ago, and I noticed that I was every time I read through it, I was using yellow highlighter, and I thought, well... I started a new read-through program. I think it was about my third or fourth time through it with this Bible, and I got a blue highlighter, and I used that. And then I thought, okay, well, the next time I'm reading through it, I'll use a green highlighter for anything else that I might see. And uh, so I used that as a highlighter. I also got these special Bible pens that don't bleed through the thin pages, and I use those, and I mark notes. I'll just put something there uh, on the text uh, for example, in my quiet time this morning, uh, I was reading in Second Corinthians. Now, I've read this before, but 
uh, I read it today. It was uh, it jumped out at me. Second Corinthians four fourteen. Therefore, we do not give up. And then he res- gives the reasons. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing in us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. And I wrote in letters, don't give up. And I had an exclamation point. I wrote it right next to it. And then I gave the reasons. Don't give up. Change my focus. And uh, I, I mark the things I need to change my focus on. Uh, from uh, Instead of being concerned with my outer person, think about the inner person. Instead of thinking about temporary light affliction, think about eternal weight of glory. Instead of thinking about uh, what is seen, focus on what is unseen, what is invisible. And uh, I just changed my focus. And that's how I can keep from quitting. And I wrote it right in my Bible so I can remember it. Uh, that's, I don't have any specialized system. That's just it. Okay? That's great. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Thanks for your call. Uh, we're going to speak with Adam in Cleveland, Ohio, listening on WCRF. Welcome to Open Line, Adam. How can I help you? Hi, Michael. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I've been doing a study on Hosea and... I just want your commentary on Hosea chapter 2, mm-hmm. verses uh, 14, 15, and 16, mm-hmm. um, where it talks about the allure of God taking Israel into uh, the Valley of Achor as a, a place of fruitfulness. And if I remember, I don't know if it was Chronicles, but the Valley of Achor, I think, was like a place of desolation for Israel. And then it, he ends it by wait, saying, wait, he's "You know what? Do you, do you, we're, we're running out of time, so let me let me just give my answer." Okay, go ahead. shoot, shoot, sure. yeah, shoot. Uh, he says he's going to lead her into the wilderness. Now, remember, chapter one talked about how Israel, and chapter two, the first part, Israel disobeyed, and they were disciplined, and the discipline would be uh, exile. But this is talking about the end of days. Uh, the way God will restore Israel is by taking her to the wilderness. That's what Ezekiel tells us uh, in chapter 20 and chapter 36, all these different places uh, in the end of days. And uh, she will go from the Valley of Akor, which is the Valley of Trouble, to Petach Tikva, to the Gateway of Hope. And uh, she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came out of the land of Egypt. And then she will no longer turn to to idols, but... but turn to the Lord. That's what this is about. And that day I will make a covenant with them, he says. That's the new covenant, and they will be fully restored, and they will then again be my people. They will be compassion. They will be the people who God restores. That's the future of Israel when they turn in faith to the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. Thanks for your call. Thanks for the program this week. Everybody who listened, thank you for calling and asking your questions. I really appreciate it. As always, thanks to our Chicago crew, crew, Trisha McMillan, uh, Courtney Young, and Charles Coletta. Thanks for all you do uh, to make this program go on the air. Keep in touch by going to our website, openlineradio.org. It has all the links you're looking for and things that you'll need, even how to become a Kitchen Table Partner or get our resource. Keep reading the Bible. 
We'll talk about it next week. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.